welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, now open these words to us, Lord, this letter from the Apostle Paul written to a young man many, many years ago, but still a living word to your church today. Come and empower the preaching of the gospel. Be with me, Lord, give me the right words to say. Grant me utterance under the power and unction of the Holy Spirit. And give give each and every one of us, Lord, uh, ears to hear, hearts receptive to your truth and lives that will be full of the grace to live it out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Well, um, by the way, I've I've had too much caffeine and too little sleep. There's no telling what will happen. Anything could happen. But uh, this morning, we are working our way through two letters of St. Paul, two letters of St. Paul to Timothy. We're in a series of, of sermons about those two letters, First and Second Timothy. Uh, Timothy is a young man that he has left as the pastor in charge of the church in Ephesus, a city in what was called Asia Minor. It's today it's modern-day Turkey. And now we are in Second uh, Timothy, and in this letter, Paul is writing from prison in Rome as he awaits his execution. And so in one sense, this is Paul's last will and testament. In 2 Timothy, Paul seems especially concerned about one thing, and that is urging Timothy to be courageous, to be faithful and courageous in the face of opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't pull any punches for Timothy. Throughout this letter, Paul is reminding his young lieutenant that following Jesus and being a faithful minister of the gospel will invite suffering into his life. And last week we heard Paul tell him in Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, don't be fearful. It's going to be very hard, Timothy. It's going to hurt, but God's Spirit will give you the ability to endure suffering. And nevertheless, in spite of that, the tone of this letter is not fatalistic. Rather, the tone of this letter is triumphant. And with that in mind, I want to argue that Paul's encouragement to this timid, faint-hearted pastor is especially relevant for us today as we begin to face increasing hostility to the good news of Jesus Christ in the secularizing, once-Christian countries of the West. And so I want to give you a very recent public example of that increasing hostility in just a moment. But I want to show us this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 2 why, listen, if we are feeling fearful or faint-hearted or discouraged or even defeated, we can have confidence, confidence as followers of Jesus Christ today. It comes down to this simple truth. And if you want to write down the main point, here it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is invincible. The gospel of Jesus Christ is invincible. So let's jump right in, and we're going to focus on verses 8 through 13. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, you need to remind yourself to remember 
the content of the gospel. He says, remember Jesus Christ. All right, Timothy, fearful pastor, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, why, why do we have to be, um, why do we not have to be fearful? Why does Timothy not have to be fearful in this? Well, to begin with, Timothy, remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The tense of the Greek uh, translated risen, the Greek verb translated risen there, listen, does not imply one definitive act in time, but rather a continual state that lasts forever. So this is a continual state that lasts forever. In other words, Timothy, Jesus is alive right now, and he is with you. You are not facing your hardships on your own. Jesus is alive. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Listen, Christian. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, to the end, those who draw near to God through him. Listen to what it says. Since he always lives, he always lives to make intercession for them. But then Paul adds uh, to remember that Jesus, this is my gospel, Timothy, so he's risen from the dead. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. We say that every Sunday, you know, in the creed. But then he says, remember, my, what I preach in my gospel, he's the offspring of David. Jesus is the offspring of David. Now, now, why, why is that? I mean, how is this a necessary component of the gospel? How does this strengthen me in suffering or in my fear? Well, this is the way it does it. It is a reminder that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to send the Messiah. Remember John the Baptist's father? Remember uh, Zechariah, the priest? You might not recall it, but it's in Luke chapter 1. We get all that great, you know, uh, Bible uh, stories about how the Annunciation happens. Gabriel come, the angel Gabriel comes to uh, Mary, and, and she has that interaction. But angel also came to Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah, uh, Mary said, you know, I believe. Let it be done to me as the Lord has spoken. Zechariah said, uh, when when he is told that he and Elizabeth, his his wife, they're both uh, very old people, like my age, <laughs> says, uh, you and your wife, Zachariah, are going to have a baby. And he says, I don't think so. <laughs> and at that point, the uh, angel says, well, since you don't believe, uh, you're not going to be able to speak until this baby's born. Uh, but then the baby is born, and that baby is John the Baptist. And when Zachariah can speak again, he sings a song. He sings a song called the Benedictus, and we often offer that same song, not usually sung, but at least we say it out loud in morning prayer, and it goes like this. And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the... This is when he can finally talk, you know, when the baby is born, and they put, a, they put something in his hand. He writes out, His name is John. And at that moment, he sings this. He speaks and he sings this. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Listen to what it says. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's raised up for us a mighty Savior in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets 
from of old. This is God's promise from the Old Testament being revealed today. God was faithful to Israel. And so Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, the core of my gospel is that Israel's God is a faithful God. He has kept all his promises to his people. So timid Timothy, timid follower of Jesus, God is faithful. And because of that, he will not abandon you. Timothy, don't be afraid. God will not abandon you. Christian, do not be afraid. God will not abandon you. And where is Paul when he is extolling the faithfulness of Israel's God? Where is he? He is in chains in a Roman prison prison awaiting execution. And Paul is saying, remember Jesus risen from the dead, the offspring of David. God is faithful. Paul does not sugarcoat the suffering, though, that being a minister of the gospel will bring for Timothy. This is what he says. We'll just continue that verse. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I, my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. What has preaching the good news about Jesus all over the Roman world What has collecting funds for the poor in Jerusalem? What has healing the sick and casting out demons in the name of Jesus brought to Paul? He is bound with chains as an evildoer. That's literally the word in Greek. That's what it literally means. Paul is seen. Paul, this good man, this example to us, is seen as an evildoer. 21st Christian, you need, 21st century Christian, you need to listen to this. If you stand for the gospel, if you align yourself with Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Holy Scripture, not the imaginary Jesus concocted out of our sentimentality, but the Jesus of the Bible, to many people, you are not going to look like a positive societal influence. You are going to look like an evildoer. You don't believe me? Well, let me offer you an illustration from this past week. But before I do, let me first offer some necessary qualifications. We have to do this because of the moment in time in which we live. All human beings struggle. This is the qualification. All human beings, which includes you and me, struggle with disordered affections and desires. How many of us? All of us. That's the effect of our rebellion against God. That's the root of human sinfulness. This invariably, though, has a universal impact on our experience of sexuality. So those with same-sex attraction are no better or worse than any of us other sinners who have disordered desires. That submarine's going to come up in just a moment. There you go. So if that is someone here, you are welcomed here and you will be loved here. And we have people who experience that here. However, all of us who follow Jesus Christ are given grace by the Holy Spirit to order our lives according to the gospel. All of us, just like we all suffer from disordered affections, all born-again followers of Jesus are given grace by the Holy Spirit to order our lives according to the gospel. We believe that God calls us to live out His intention for human sexuality as presented in the Bible. Nobody gets a pass. The Word of God applies to all of us. Yes, it is a struggle, and we frequently fail. 
But when we keep coming back to Jesus in genuine repentance, He keeps receiving and restoring us, and the process of growing in Christ-like obedience to God and holiness begins again. So that's qualification. Now the illustration. Just this past Thursday on a CNN town hall meeting, one presidential candidate was asked this question. Do you think that religious institutions like colleges, churches, notice he didn't say mosques or any other kind of religious institution. Hmm. Do you think that religious institutions like colleges, churches, charities should lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? Without hesitation, the candidate replied, yes. And the, cloud, and, the, and the crowd cheered and loudly applauded. And no other candidate objected to this position. He then went on, to say, went on to say, there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that, that denies the full human rights and full civil rights of every single one of us. Indeed, he, he added, so as president, we're going to make that a priority. We're going to make that a priority. And we are going to stop those who are infringing on the, on the rights. We're going to stop those who are infringing on the rights of their fellow Americans. In other words, this is what was said. You Christians that hold to Jesus Christ's own teaching regarding marriage are evildoers and should be punished by the state. Now, not you good, domesticated, progressive Christians who have been liberated from the words of the Bible. No, you can keep following your made-up Jesus. But your fair, you feral, Bible-thumping Christians, you recalcitrant, feral Christians, we will financially destroy any church that holds to the teaching of Jesus when He said in Matthew chapter 19, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Uh, what therefore God has joined together, let not, let not man separate. Who said that? Jesus said that. Not my imaginary sentimental Jesus. No, that Bible Jesus said that. So if, so we are told, if that's what you believe, listen, if, if it just means, it didn't say anybody who's acting anyway, it just says people who oppose it, oppose same-sex marriage. So if that's what you believe, if that's your conviction, if that's your theological commitment, just that belief alone is a violation of human rights. You have committed a thought crime, and you must be punished by the state as an evildoer. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't look like victory. That looks like the defeat of the gospel. But from the bowels of a Roman prison, as he awaits beheading, Paul calls out through the centuries to us, Buck up, timid, anxious, 21st century American Christian. For this gospel, I am suffering, bound with chains as an evildoer. And this is what the Word of God says. Paul says, but the Word of God is not chained. The Word of God is not chained. This is what the state did to me, but it does not affect the gospel's effectiveness. This is what the state did to me, but this does not inhibit the spread of the gospel. The Word of God is unchained. The gospel is invincible, 
and cannot be shackled by any force in creation. In another prison letter, another letter when Paul is in prison, he writes explaining that his very imprisonment, that which, which was meant to squelch the spread of the Jesus movement, has had just the opposite effect. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. All those godless Roman soldiers in Caesar's household now know about Jesus. How's that working out for you? And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When worldly authorities try to censor the power of the gospel, the word bleeds through the stamp of the censor. Timothy, be be courageous. Even when we lose, we win. The gospel is invincible. Church, be be courageous. Too much caffeine, too little sleep. Be courageous. We are far too easily cowed and discouraged by the scorn and disapproval of man. We are too, we too easily assume that the church will cease to exist in the secularizing West. There is a columnist or uh, an essayist or author that I read, and I just want to tell him, brother, buck up. It's, you know, the church is not going to cease to exist. You know, you don't, don't, I, yes, it's going to get hard. <laughs> we were told that, but it's going to be fine. For 20 centuries, beloved, empires and monarchs and despots and tyrants and ideologies and heresies have tried to stamp us out. They are all vanquished by time and by God's truth. Jesus Christ is alive and his church marches on through the ages unconquered. We're going to take away your tax uh, exemption. Oh, yeah, that really scares us. <laughs> You're going to have to move home and live with your mom and dad, Ben Sharp. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> Paul then moves on to personal encouragement. Yes, encouragement. Yes, the gospel is invincible, but we as individual believers are, invin- are invincible as well if we remain steadfast in Christ. The saying is trustworthy, Paul writes, for if we have died with him, we, all, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This has two meanings. First of all, it refers to our baptism, to our union with Christ through the waters of baptism and through faith. Do you not know, this is Paul, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul, Romans uh, 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death if we have died with him? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We will live with Him. Timothy, you can walk in the... Don't be timid. You can walk in the power and glory of the resurrection today. You died with Christ. You've been raised to newness of life through baptism. And secondly, this obviously refers, since this is what I think Timothy is mostly fearing, it refers to actually laying down our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. In February of 2015, 21 Coptic Christian men were lined up, we saw the pictures, lined up on a beach in Libya, each one with an Islamist killer dressed in black standing behind him. As they knelt at a word, they were all sim- they all simultaneously had their heads sawn off with large knives. In the days and weeks leading up to their martyrdoms, their ISIS captors tortured them and attempted to persuade them to deny Jesus in return for living. They all refused to deny Jesus. They all died on that beach literally singing songs of praise to Jesus. My Bible says these men are winners, more than conquerors, crowned with a martyr's crown of whom the world is not worthy. They live in Christ today. If we die in Him, we shall also live with Him. And if we endure, we will also reign with Him. Our endurance in the face of opposition to the gospel results in reigning with Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.17, a man who had been beaten and imprisoned and and, uh, uh, tortured and put in the stocks and all of these things that had happened to St. Paul, he says this, for these light, momentary, Afflict, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal, listen, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If we endure, we will reign with Him. But if we deny Jesus, if we compromise the gospel, if we, be, if we progress and are liberated from God's Word written, because we are afraid of losing our stuff, our standing, or our safety, then Jesus Christ, when we stand before Him at Judgment Day, will deny us. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, He says, So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Timothy, the stakes are eternal. Christian, the stakes are eternal. But there is really good news in verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is not the denial of Christ. This is the, the, the lagging faith, that those seasons in life where we do not walk close to the Lord who claimed us. Let me, let me tell you why this verse is so meaningful to me. I became a follower of Jesus Christ in 1978. That's right. That was in the last century, children. 
We call that the post-apostolic period. <laughs> but from 1981 to 1985, I abandoned my discipleship. During that time, I was bitter and hostile to God. I blamed God for the consequences of what were my own foolish and immature actions. I behaved in ways I hadn't even behaved when I wasn't a Christian. I feared God still, so I didn't blaspheme, but I was his enemy. My selfishness and hatefulness were killing my marriage. But in January of 1985, something happened that would change my life. Rebecca, our first child, was born. And I remember looking at that little girl and at her mother and thinking to myself that I could not let Rebecca grow up with a father like me. She deserved so much better. She was a miracle. So I prayed a prayer. This is literally the prayer I prayed. God, I may have gone so far that I can never come back. I may be going to hell, but let me tell you how I'm going to go to hell. I will take my family to church every Sunday. I will pray and read my Bible every day. I'll be the best father and best husband I can be. You don't have to do anything for me. I don't ever have to feel anything again. I just want you to know I'm going to do the best that I can. I didn't tell Lisa. I'd already disappointed her so many times. So after she would go to bed, I would, I would sneak into the living room and kneel beside an old green sofa and pray and read the Bible. I was faithless. I didn't have any faith. I didn't expect anything good to happen. I didn't expect anything to happen. I just did it because it was good and right and a just thing to do. This went on for about a week when as I was secretly play, uh, praying one evening, something extraordinary happened. This happened. The room was suddenly filled with a presence. In fact, several presences and it seemed that I could almost see, and indeed I did perceive with some sense, and I would call it theologically the noose in O-U-S, some knowledge other than human sight but light sight. I know it doesn't make much sense, but I perceived it. That the room was full of beating wings. I experienced the beating of wings in that room. There were angels in that room. And I know it sounds really weird, but it seemed to me that their wings were covered with eyes front and back. There was a swift, sharp battle around me, and the darkness that had invaded my life was driven out. Suddenly there was peace, and my soul was infused with exquisite joy and love. It was as if God had sovereignly thrown a switch and turned my spiritual lights back on. I don't know if I was reading this verse right before or right after this happened, but when I read it, it was as, as if God was speaking directly to me. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. God was saying, son, you can forget about me, 
You can be angry and bitter at me. You can run away from me. But I will not. I cannot forget about you. See, I have graven you on the palms of my hands. I'm a covenant God. I'm a promise-keeping God. And I will never give up on you. Never give up on you. If I have to, I will carry this relationship all by myself until the day your heart returns to me. God blessed Lisa's faithfulness with giving her a, a husband who cherished her and who loved her little girl. God renewed my long-abandoned call to ministry. And because God will not give up on us, I am your priest today. Beloved, even if we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, God will, keep, will find us and will keep his covenant promise to us. The glorious thing about God's faithfulness that I have discovered is that God's faithfulness enables us to be faithful in response to God. All this grace. God's faithfulness flows out to us and returns to God in a responsive wave of human faithfulness. It all comes from God. It is utterly dependent upon God. And that is why we celebrate this Eucharist. It is God's sign and means of His faithful presence with us yet. Even if we don't feel Him present, God is here because He cannot deny Himself. He is faithful, faithful to pardon, faithful to imbue us with strength to overcome sin, those disordered affections, and live in holiness. Even if we are individually faithless, God meets us at His table. And when we meet our faithful God at this miraculous feast, we receive the invincible grace of the gospel to respond with faithfulness to Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.